Welcome to the Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey. Here's your host, Mark Seelis. I've always worried about the fact that so often in terms of humanity, we leave everything too late. So you have to get, you have to hit a brick wall and experience a catastrophe before anything happens. But this time, of course, with this kind of uh, disaster we've engineered, it's, it's, it takes a huge amount to turn the whole thing back to how it should be, to restore the balance. Bioeconomy is now even more possible in terms of what, uh, you know, the returns you can make, the difference it can make to people and their environment, the use of wood, I mean, what they can now do, the forestry sector tell me, in terms of uh, wood-based products being used for alternatives to plastics, chemicals, um, aviation fuels, biofuels, everything, and building materials of immense strength. All this provides a real incentive to do the right thing, if you see what I mean, to put trees again where they're needed in order to capture carbon, but also to help fuel a, an economy that centers around nature's own services the ecosystem services we depend on. If we leave it too long, and we have done, just growing things is going to become difficult. I mean, even you know, in, in many of these forest areas, um, in other parts of the world, if you, if, you, if you deforest below a certain percentage, you end up with, with the breaking the hydrological cycle, and then you can't plant anything because there's no water to you know, to keep the system going. So we only have a very short window. And this is why it's so absolutely critical, I feel, and with the help of the World Economic Forum, it's why we're trying to bring as many of these investors together with as many of the companies and sectors as possible. I'm trying to do this each month uh, from now on in order to try and see if we can create the right framework and the right response to, to make it possible for, you know, your children and my grandchildren was to, to have a decent, reasonable future. It was by the age of 10 when I heard for the first time from one of my teachers about something called global warming. During that class, she said that there was nothing to worry about as that would take a few hundred years to have an impact on us, but something didn't add up for me. I raised my hand and asked her, but wouldn't it be smarter to start acting now so the future generation doesn't have to suffer such a problem? She smiled back at me as if I had just asked the most stupid question ever. We just heard in the introduction an edited audio where Britain's Prince Charles shared a few reflections during an interview at CNN back in January. In 1970, he had warned about the problems of plastic waste, chemicals being discharged into rivers and air pollution caused by factories, cars and planes. This was regarded as completely potty, said the prince. Somehow, his words resonated in me and carried back that experience that I had as a kid. Are we doing too little too late? And how much time do we have left until we are at the point of no return? During the ongoing COVID-19 crisis, we are experiencing a situation most of us couldn't imagine we would see in our lifetime. Having said that, there is one element that also captures my attention, and that is the remarkable improvement in air pollution levels due to the global lockdown. 
However, according to the experts, this will not have any impact to slow the climate change, as many believe that these reductions are temporary. It's more clear now the potential impact our society could have on the climate change problem if efforts would be focused to gather resources and combined plans were deployed to make this temporal solution into a permanent constructive one. This would also mean to redefine our economies and how we are generating value and growth. In another interview, the prince said that everything we are doing has been to destroy our own means of survival, let alone the survival of everything else we depend on. But at the same time, we seem to be unable to understand that there is an alternative way of doing it, which is to put nature back at the center, value everything she does and build from there. And now, there is an amazing amount that can be done through the circular bioeconomy. I believe as well that we have the opportunity now to start thinking about which kind of a future do we want to create after we get out of this crisis, and how to build a resilient structure that allow us to endure future situations similar to the one that we are facing right now. Once I heard that the oldest eatable jar of honey ever found is believed to be 5,500 years old. That fascinated me, as it means that when honey is produced and well taken care of, it can be enjoyed for hundreds and thousands of years. What if we would treat climate change in the same way, so the future generations could enjoy as much as we have of our honey jar that we call Earth? This presents a great opportunity and a big challenge. And that's how we are going to redesign our economy and our cities to be ready for an uncertain and complex environment. The president of Lead to Change, Xavier Marcet, and the director of the European Forest Institute, Mark Palahi, just published an article mentioning that the bioeconomy is an opportunity to overcome the dichotomy between ecology and economy and the chance to create a new paradigm where prosperity takes place within the sustainable limits of our planet. In some way, ecology will be the new economy. The good news is that building a relationship between ecology and economy has never been more feasible than it is now. This is due to the great advances that science and technology are experiencing in the wake of the digital revolution. The internet and computers are transforming society, just as the printing press and books did in the Renaissance. The digital revolution has transformed the way in which we can use science and technology to understand nature and our natural ecosystems, allowing their sustainable management as well as their transformation into new and innovative products and services. This digital revolution, therefore, and although it may seem paradoxical, will play a critical role in the coming biological revolution. It's obvious to me how the actual situation opens up a door not only to redesign our economies, but as well the spaces we live in, our cities. A few months ago, I had the privilege to interview Mark Palahi and Vicente Guayard to talk about circular bioeconomy and the cities of the future. For today's chapter, I thought that it would be a good idea to rescue back parts of those two interviews to help us reflect on the importance of the moment that is about to open in front of us. This is Mark Siles speaking from our safe studios at home. Welcome back to our show. To talk about bioeconomy and how this could be the answer for a sustainable and fair future, we have today with us on the phone Mark Palahi. Mark has been the director of the European Forest Institute since 2015. He's responsible for leading the organization towards an acknowledged pan-European science policy platform. 
Previously, he led FE's policy support activities and during this time was instrumental in launching ThinkForest, the European high-level science forum on the future of forest. He has also worked as head of the European Forest Institute Mediterranean Regional Office and has a PhD in forestry and economics and a master science in forestry engineering. Very impressive. Mark, welcome to our show. Thank you, Mark. A pleasure. Good morning. And it's really nice to talk to you, to Catalans in Finland. <laughs> exactly. That's not a common thing, but it's great to have such a support all that far away from home. Before we start with the interview, let me ask you what is becoming the first question for all my guests. Tell me, what are you truly passionate about? Truly passionate? I would say that, first of all, I am passionate about life. I think someone said that it's not the years in your life, but the life in your years. And since I am passionate about life, I am extremely passionate about, about nature, also about people, and especially in the connections between the two of them, between nature and people. But I am also passionate and very curious about change. Life is about change. And I am especially curious and, and passionate about everything that relates to transformational change, mm -hmm. how change takes place in nature and also in people's mind, in society. Nature, people, and change. I love those three words. How is your passion linked with what you think that the world needs at the moment, Mark? I think in a, in a deep sense, I believe that the world needs to reconnect with uh, life in its deepened sense. Mm -hmm. uh, let me tell you why. For the last 200 years, we have been relying on a, on a fossil-based economy. Oil, gas, plastics, steel. Remember that the word fossil means death or resistance to change, while bio means life. Mm -hmm. Life is about change. So I think in, in the deepest sense, the world needs a paradigmatic shift in the way it operates. We need to connect back to life, to nature. We have been now really disconnected from the basic cycles of life and nature. And I think we are in a transitioning moment because many people are realizing that. And many of the problems that we are experiencing, climate change, degradation of natural resources, are because we have lost the connection to nature and with life in its deepest sense. I totally agree. And I think that apart from the issues you have been describing, we touched as well in some of our previous podcasts, what that lack of connection is creating as well in other fields like mental mental health exactly. and other type of issues like anxiety, depression, stress, and how that's creating this ecosystem, which at the moment may not be driving to the best outcome. But I believe as well that there's a lot we can do about it. Let's move back to the topic of bioeconomy. What and who is driving the development of this economy, of the bioeconomy? First of all, bioeconomy, in my view, uh, is not defined like this very often, but to me, the bioeconomy is about bringing life at the center of the economy. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, bio means life. So the bioeconomy is about bringing life at the center of the economy. It is about valuing nature, natural capital. In the past years, the bioeconomy has been very much led from the laboratories by scientists, from uh, material science, biotech, biological-related uh, organizations, innovation. And, and at the laboratory level, the bioeconomy is already a reality. So scientifically, the bioeconomy is a reality. I think the challenge that we are facing now is that in the next years, we need to bring this reality from the laboratory to the economic scale. 
to the societal scale. Mm -hmm. So we need to really upscale the possibilities of the bioeconomy and bring it, uh, transform it from a technological reality into an economic reality. And to do that, we of course, we will need regulations. We need the governments to become active. We need investors. We need to explain to the potential investors what the bioeconomy is about, why it's so important in terms of environment and business, so that we will channel the investments necessary to upscale from the laboratory to the economy. Mm. If I understand correctly, of course, there will be economical and financial constraints and needs to include in the equation. And how can those boost national economies and employment? How will it affect countries and people? I think uh, there is a very easy way to, to see the benefits of the bioeconomy. And is if you look at the ownership, for example, of our biological resources, for example, look at our forest. Mm -hmm. There are in Europe, there are 16 million forest owners. Compare that to who is owning, owning oil resources, gas resources, minerals, and many other things. So basically, if we put our biological resources to work for our economy, you know, it's that yeah. we recognize nature as the as the power of our economy. Mm -hmm. I think we will be able to have a, a much more inclusive growth so we can distribute wealth in the territory in a much more democratic way. Mm -hmm. And the bioeconomy also is about innovation. It's about connecting technology and innovation to nature to produce new products, new services. So it will deliver also high added value products and uh, high added value jobs. It's a way to reinvent our economy, to modernize our economy by bringing it, paradoxically, by bringing it back to nature. So it's, it will offer benefits in terms of employment in rural and urban areas. Mm -hmm. And I think it will, it will catalyze new innovations and, and a smart and sustainable growth in our, in our European and, and global economies. So you see a potential for the bioeconomy and a big potential to create employment as well. And when we talk about employment, we talk about new jobs, not redefining jobs that already exist. I think so. I think so, because we will need to reinvent ourselves. I think in the next, next three decades, we will need to experience the, the greatest economic transition in human history, because we will need to move towards a carbon neutral economy. This is a huge effort, because it means replacing not only fossil energy sources like oil, gas, coal mm -hmm. by renewables, but it also means replacing all the non-renewable materials that we are using now. Remember that our cities, for example, are built on based on concrete, steel. Then also we have the plastics issue. So it means shifting all these materials and energy in key industrial sectors towards new types of products that are based on renewable sources. And the only way to replace non-renewable materials is by using renewable biological resources. Mm -hmm. So the bioeconomy is uh, an important part of the solution for this transition. You are also talking about the quality of those new job places and as well the quality of, of life in general. Worldwide, 3 billion people still do not have access to clean energy for cooking, meaning that they prepare food on open wood fires, for example. How can it be a driver for growth thinking about bioeconomy, especially in the areas where it's needed the most to increase this quality of life? This is a very, very good question, Mark, and I, I think that in, in many areas of the, of the world, 
Nowadays, the case of Africa is very clear. Low efficient bioenergy using wood is the main source of energy in many of the rural areas for cooking, for heating, for many things. An important transition in the coming years will be that these people will utilize other types of energy sources like solar, for example, and then the current biological resources like wood that are being used for low efficient energy could be used for higher added value materials. Mm -hmm. Now the interesting development is that a new generation of biorefineries are emerging in many parts of the world. This means replacing the traditional oil refineries by bio-based refineries. And I think this could be also a very important development for Africa and Asia to produce with the, their existing biological resources, new types of materials like textiles, for example, is a very good example. Hmm. In the future, we will need to replace polyester, synthetic fibers, but also cotton, which is not sustainable. And, and wood-based textiles is one of the most significant materials that we can use in the future to replace them. I think what you said now, it's also an important differentiation to keep in mind. What's the difference between that something is ecological or it's sustainable? Yes, exactly. This is a very important question that needs to be very clear. First of all, that something is biologically based doesn't mean that it's sustainable. Cotton is a very good example. Some uses of biological resources for energy also are, are clear. And there is another important aspect that renewable resources like biological resources do not mean that they are unlimited. So they need to be managed and transformed sustainably. So we need to be very careful. And this is why uh, resource efficiency and using our biological resources in the best possible way is crucial. Mm -hmm. So renewable doesn't mean unlimited and bio-based doesn't mean sustainable. Those are extremely good points, especially when we hear a lot of talk about what it's called the circular economy. So how would you say that the, how different the circular economy and the bio economy concepts are and why should they be brought together? Yeah, very, very good because there is a lot of misunderstandings also in this. And uh, first of all, I think that the bio economy and the circular economy, they need each other in order to replace the existing linear fossil based economy. Why? I, I just mentioned that biological resources are renewable, but they are not unlimited. And therefore, they need to be used efficiently, intelligently, and sustainably. And to do so, we need to join forces with the circular economy, which is about resource efficiency, and especially is about designing materials and products in a new way, so that they can be easily reusable, recyclable. You could say that the circular economy is more about the process, the design of the products and the materials to make it as efficient and as circular as possible, while the bioeconomy is about using bio-based solutions in a sustainable way to replace fossil products. Mm -hmm. And they need each other because at the end of the day, a circular economy that continues to rely on fossil sources will not address the urgent environmental problems that we are facing, like climate change. And a bioeconomy that is not circular will not have enough resources to massively replace the fossil economy. So basically, the circular economy and the bioeconomy are two sides of the same coin, the coin of a new economic model that we need. The companies that are relying on a bioeconomy should be the first ones to invest in biodiversity, in the resilience of our environment. What we need to do is that since we need to rely on nature as the engine of our economy, we need to first of all take care that we invest in nature. So we, are, we should be the first one interested to invest in nature, in biodiversity. 
And I think this is going to be very hard for many people to understand because it's a totally different way of looking at the environment and the economy and, it, and the interrelations between the two of them. This requires as well to forget things that we know, to bring in new learnings, to bring in new knowledge and go towards some, let's, let me call it, you know, lands where we don't have maps, we only have compass with us. That's usually the metaphor I use, maps and compasses. Yes. For process improvements, we have maps, we understand where we are, so we can navigate and it feels more comfortable. Having said that, to go into the area that you are mentioning, we need compasses. And the only thing that the compasses tells us is our north, nothing else. And to have that north, we need a, we need a strong vision as well to be on place. Yes. So for institutions and companies, what I've seen when they lack, first of all, the north, they lack the vision and the strong passion to go towards that place where... They know that they don't have maps, that they only have a compass and they will have to face the struggles, they will have to face failures and they will have to learn new things. And that's okay. It's not until then when they can make these radical transformations. And for this case, if I understand you're right, you're pointing at the same direction, is that we don't know how we will get there. But if we have a strong vision and we have the eagerness to try and learn new things and use this compass that tells us what is the north, what is that passion that we want to strive toward, we'll get there at some point. But we just need to understand that it's a lot of learning and unknowns we will need to face. And that's okay. Exactly. Fully agree, Mark. And I think many times I use this parallel is that in, if you look back to the Renaissance, you know, from the 16th century up to the 19th century, we experience huge transformations. The Renaissance, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution. So there were 300 years where the, we really put the basis for a modern era. And now we are in a time of history that in the next three decades, we will need to experience transformations as huge as we experienced in those 300 years before. So we need a new renaissance to really reflect about the role of humanity in nature and the role of nature in humanity. We need a new industrial revolution, which is based on the digital and the biological sub-revolutions, because at the end of the day, the digital revolution is transforming the way that we can understand nature and the way that we can unlock value from our biological systems. Mm -hmm. So I think the new industrial revolution would be happening at the interface, at the merging of the digital and the bio. And I think it's also time to be humble and recognize that nature is the ultimate sophistication. When I think about the years I spent working in Japan and China, I noticed that a lot of their wisdom is based on stories from nature. You're right. To learn and observe. You're right. Very quickly, I recall a story I heard from one of my clients in China of, of this pastry that they talked to kids to talk about this topic. And, you know, this pastry that was selling, was selling muffins. And then suddenly one day they noticed that some of the boxes they were getting did not have any muffin inside. So it was very hard when they were selling to clients. Clients were going home with empty boxes and they were getting angry. And this was like a national worldwide problem. So then the story goes that there was this big factory that invested millions of euros to design this machine that would detect the weight of the boxes and pull them aside when they were uh, not having a muffin inside. And then this small guy from this bakery didn't have all those resources. So what he did is like he went for a walk to the forest and then suddenly he noticed how the wind was wiping out the leaves that just were falling off the trees in autumn. And then he just got the idea, he went back to his store and the only thing he did, he placed a fan in front of the boxes. So the boxes that didn't wait anything just <laughs> were taken away <laughs> by the wind. And that costed, what, five, ten euros? While the other guys, they use all the technology and they invest in millions. And these kind of stories have been used 
for many years through ancient culture. So I believe that what you're pointing at now to stop for a while and reflect and look back at the answers we have around us, it's a very, very important factor. And that brings in mind actually one of your posts, Mark, that I read that I, I really like. You started your post, if I recall, mentioning uh, Nelson Mandela, who once said that education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And this touched me a lot, especially after my, my daughter, I have a 12 years old daughter, and she has started to ask me, you know, she looks very concerned about what's going on and which kind of future we're going to live for her. And I'm going to paraphrase one question uh, that in the way that you open up your mentioned post, how can education help to build a sustainable future, balancing economy, ecology, nature and society in the era of digitalization and urbanization, as you have just been mentioning? I, I think it's crucial. Eh? And I think this sentence, I like that you took it because it's one of my favorite ones. And I think without education, we will not be able to change the world. You know, as Nelson Mandela was saying, it's the most powerful weapon we, ha we have to change the world. And I think this is crucial that we invest in proper education so that the new generations will be again connected to nature. If we need to realize a, a bioeconomy in the future, you know, bringing life at the center of the economy, we need to start educating our children, which currently think uh, we are living in an urbanized society. So most kids in the world, more than 50% of the kids are being educated in cities. How are our cities look like? Most of the cities is basically asphalt, concrete, steel, okay, a few trees. But and I think we need a fundamental shift in how our cities look, our schools look, and how we invest in our children to reconnect back to nature mm -hmm. so that they understand that what we just discussed, you know, that many of the solutions and many of the questions are there in nature. They need to understand all these cycles. And I think it is very important if you look at the digital economy, the smartphones, the, you know, the, the anxiety that all this causes and the lack of attention because kids are all the time now looking at uh, screens and they are activated by many signals. I think it's very important that we take time to walk in the forest with them, that they can touch trees, that they can see that you can make materials new materials based on wood, which are organic materials. So I think it's, it's basic, it's fundamental that we invest in education. Otherwise, we will not be able at the end of the day to, to make the transformational change that we need. How do you believe we can create more engagement on both ends? We're talking about governments, but also private citizens. What can we do to help on that dimension? I think exactly what you are doing, Mark, is very important. I think communication is vital now in this, vital in this moment. You know, I think what you are doing is great. I think I really appreciate your effort, you know, because with a totally different background that people like you are interested in nature and the bioeconomy. This is what we need now, mm -hmm. that people like you are the first ones to try to act as a transmitter, you know, of the different communities, because you, with your profile, are a, a perfect person to talk to business people, to talk to companies and explain that this is needed, you know, even, even better than I can do it. So I think we need cross-pollinators, people that will take this, that are ambassadors of change, transformational change. Mm -hmm. I think we need to engage also with media. It's very important that uh, we engage with media because at the end they can multiply the impact. 
So we are making an important effort at the European Forestry Institute to have uh, workshops and tours for journalists to explain all the importance of this change because then if they are writing and they are explaining this, we will have a, a major impact. But I think communication is, is crucial now because at the end of the day, politicians will react because there is pressure on them by citizens and citizens, if they are not informed and they don't understand these things, they will not put pressure. So we need a lot of communication in the coming years. Makes total sense. For me, this topic, especially when I've been focusing on reconverting, you were talking about the paradigm shift. One of the things that I noticed through my working experience is that people do not tend to like the word change. It's somehow, yeah. you know, it's somehow pushing back or people right away has a negative connotation. What I noticed that there's the other side, the paradigm shift on change and what I like to call growth agent. So instead of becoming a change agent, how can you become an agent of growth? And that's more aligned with what you were describing a while ago, which is how can you grow as a human being? How can you help others? And at the end of the day, how can you help the planet? How can you help the environment to grow as well? Because if we don't create growth, change can mean anything. Change can also go for bad or for better. But I think this yeah. is about saving ourselves. This is about making sure that the human race will be here for many many years to come. So for me, it's about creating or becoming this agent of growth. Yeah, yeah very good reflection, Mark. And I think many people talk about changing the world, but no one is talking or very few about changing themselves. Exactly. No? And it all starts there. I think what the Dalai Lama, I heard him saying in a conference I assisted here in Helsinki some years ago, when somebody asked like, you know what, look, listen, I'm too small. You know, I cannot do anything to change the world. And then he answered like, well, look, listen, if you believe that you are too small to to make a change, to create an impact, try sleeping with a mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, yes. Which message, Mark, before we finish our fascinating interview today, which message would you like to launch to all those listeners who are wondering, what can they do, like the mosquito? What can they do and get involved to support the needed change of mind? I think we just we just touch upon it. I think it's starting to change yourself. And I think at the end of the day, your decisions, your money matters. So, you know, you need to put attention, care about the things that you are buying, which type of houses do you buy, which materials are there, the food that you are consuming. So I think with individual decisions, you can really change the world and also take the responsibility to try to change others. So I think this is at the end of the day to be responsible for what you are doing. And I think one, one important reflection that many times we forget, eh? it's not only about the circular bioeconomy and shifting materials, it's also about consuming less. You remember when you and me were kids, how many balls to play football you had? I mean, one and, and then you were carrying, you know, before you, you had one in the whole neighborhood, a couple of kids with a ball, and then you had to share the ball. Everyone was waiting for the owner of the ball to play. Nowadays, you go to a park in whichever city in Europe and each kid comes with its own ball. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we need to realize also that we are consuming too much. Also, the, the clothes, the, everything, you know, we need to really calm down and reflect about the, the high consumption. This summary from the conversation I had with Mark last December is more relevant now than ever. I think that after we reach full control of the ongoing virus outbreak, and hopefully that will be very soon, it will be the moment to fully engage with the implementation of the circular bioeconomy and meanwhile start building the basis to assure 
its success. A few months after I talked to Mark, I had another conversation with Vicente Guayart about the future of our cities, just before the outbreak spread all over the world. Here comes an extract of that interview. Enjoy. By 2050, the world's population is expected to reach 9.8 billion. Nearly 70% of this booming population, 6.7 billion people, is projected to live in urban areas. According to the World Economic Forum, there is no doubt that the city will be the defining feature of human geography for the 21st century. 1.3 million people are currently moving into cities each week, and there are at the moment 21 megacities with over 10 million people, when up to 1975 there were only three. As cities become an even more critical driver of the global economy and wealth, it's becoming crucial to ensure that they are optimized to maximize efficiency and sustainability while enhancing the quality of life in each urban conglomeration. Smart cities will be driven by features like low power sensors, wireless networks and mobile-based applications to measure and optimize everything within cities. The optimum design and implementation of how the environment, safety, transportation, utilities and buildings are combined in a unique approach will define the wished future success. There are a lot of unknowns and challenges to be solved. This means that the theoretical approach to this issue won't be good enough to innovate and develop the anatomy of the future smart city, as new learnings and insights keep emerging. To talk about the future of self-sufficient cities, we have today with us, all the way from his office in Barcelona, the Spanish architect Vicente Guayart. Vicente was the chief architect of Barcelona City Council between 2011 and 2015 with the responsibility of developing the strategic vision for the city and its major development projects. There, he developed the idea called Urban Habitats to integrate all the different layers of urban development into the unified department. Urbanism, infrastructures, transportation, energy, water, housing and environment. During his term, the city invested more than 1 billion euros in urban projects and city transformation. He also co-founded and directs the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia, where he undertakes initiatives such as the Media House Project together with the MIT's Media Lab and leads the Master in Advanced Ecological Buildings. Vicente has been the founder of the Shukov Lab at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, where he develops the Master of Prototyping Future Cities and has given lectures in many universities around the world, including Princeton, Harvard, MIT, Columbia, the Architectural Association School in London, or Marchi in Moscow. His professional office, Wayar Architects, has developed many international widely recognized and awarded projects, like the Port of Fuji and Keilung in Taiwan, or the Sociopolis neighborhood in Valencia, and is working in projects of several scales around the world. He is the author of books like Geologics, or The Self-Sufficient City, and co-author of the Metapolis Dictionary of Advanced Architecture. His work has been exhibited in places like the Biennale of Venezia or MoMA in New York. The American Institute of Architects organized in 2010 a solo exhibition of his work in Washington, D.C. Vicente, welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. Before starting the interview, let me ask you, 
What are you truly passionate about? Well, my true passion is about the next thing that I will do. When I was a kid, I was traveling with my parents around Europe every summer. And I discovered the past and the present. And maybe we were talking about the future of these places. What I'm interested is about how humanity created the conditions for living together, how to design buildings, how to make cities. And I am very much interested about the history of what we did before. And I am very much interested about what we'll do next. So every time that I think about the future is uh, connected with what I learned about what we did in the past. Passionate about the future. I love that. How would you say then that your passion is linked with what you think that the world needs at the moment? I would say that innovation happens in different spheres. Uh, at different speed in different areas. For example, the algorithm for uh, Google search can change in any moment. Uh, cell phone, uh, Apple change, uh, have a new model every year. Uh, one car upgrade his brand every five years. Uh, I mean, the, the, the uh, one specific model. And then the cities uh, change every 25 to 30 to 40 years. So I would say that if we see... Uh, how cities were at the beginning of 20th century and how were at the end, there were at least uh, two or three major transformations. So that means that the city that is coming uh, will be different to the one that we have been living. And there is always this connection between the paradigm that we have in front of us in order to take the decision to go to do these kind of cities. So in the 60s, for example, the cities were car-oriented. We were building highways then, There were more cars, then there were more highways. And then in city, many cities around the world, they were building highways, literally in the middle of the main avenues. So now we have started to demolish this highway because, and we are thinking to forbidden the cars in the cities. So that means that uh, cities are always changing and we need to have a vision about what is coming next and what we want, how we want to live in order to transform our city. In your presentations, you talk about the principles of global connectivity and local self-sufficiency to invent the city of the future that you're referring now and build the present. Could you explain those two concepts to our audience, global connectivity and local self-sufficiency? We founded uh, at the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia in the year 2000. At that moment, the were Google didn't exist, Facebook didn't exist, Instagram, the emails will start to work. And then at that time, the question was uh, how internet, how the digital technologies will change the way we live, will change how architecture is done, how these cities are planned. My uncle has an oven that was connected to internet and he said, yeah, I call my oven before I go home and then it's on and so on. And I say, well, what a stupid application, no? Because if uh, internet and the digital tools and the way we apply to our buildings or our housing is just as a kind of gadget, something that is kind of useless, doesn't make sense. So we realize that the two important things about the digital world is that we can learn from each other, we can connect to other people. And, and the second thing, Uh, that was important because at that time we started to work with MIT, with Neil Hassanfield, and Neil Hassanfield from the Center of Beats and Atoms. We did that media house project with him. Uh, the, the, we, we realized that the digital by itself was not relevant at all. Digital could be used, useful if we used to connect people, to learn from them, to create a kind of global network 
networks of people sharing knowledge, developing open source design and so on. And the second topic is that few years later, we start to work, we design our first sufficient house, uh, we call the Fab Lab house, that was built with wood, was the first uh, self-sufficient building built ever built in Barcelona. And then we realized that the digital technology allow us is to be connected in, uh, in global networks of economy of knowledge, but then to be productive locally. What we could learn from each other is, is how we fabricate things. Using digital fabrication, we start to work and to develop the global network of fab labs that they start in, at MIT. And then if you are connected, you share knowledge, but you have the technology in order to produce energy in your building to 3D print uh, some kind of any tool that you need. And also, if you are able to grow your food near your home, then that's bingo. I mean, we, we are changing the world because suddenly we don't need to import tomatoes from Brazil or we don't have unemployed people here in Barcelona that they go to IKEA to buy a chair that has been produced in China. In China. The world will change always following things that make sense. That sounds really interesting. And somehow you have already started to answer what was going to be my next question. And I know that this question, if every time you have been asked, you would get a euro, now you would be a millionaire. But let me ask you once again, in which kind of cities do you think that we will be living by 2050? When we wrote that book, they said, well, that's true. You are super optimistic. But what we are looking around is something different. And then someone told me, you know, there are two potential futures. One that is Blade Runner and the other that is the self-sufficient city. Well, Blade Runner is a city run by corporations when the climate has damaged, damaged so much our environment that we don't see the sun. It's always raining. People are afraid between each other. We don't distinguish the humans uh, with the robots. And then uh, there is no hope, I would say. And this is one potential feature that we could see. You see some videos about the future of cities from the Pentagon that you can find in mm -hmm. YouTube. They say cities are the places where the big disasters can come. Because if you have 1,000 people in a city of 1 billion, they can make a revolution. They can uh, uh, distribute the cities. Obviously, there are many ways of thinking on the future. One way of thinking that is everything will be very dangerous. We need to protect. We need to be afraid of each other. We need to buy guns and so on. The other approach, that this is the one that we propose, is that we live in cities because we want. We live in cities because a city is an agreement between people in order to live together, in order to uh, have a mutual, I would say, cooperation by selling, by sharing, by living together, taking care of each other, sometimes discussing, uh, but also mm -hmm. sometimes, many times, cooperating to live better. And, and then the next challenge is that cities become productive again. If we have now solar panels, we can have energy produced in our buildings, we can store energy in batteries. Yeah, we were working uh, on that in the last uh, 12 or 14 years already, uh, and we are already proving that this is possible. But the question is, we need to move these small-scale projects doing buildings that produce energy, producing food, like, uh, like in, in Iceland, I discovered a greenhouse in Iceland that they produce the tomato for 20% of the people. This is a masterpiece. We could have 
the greenhouse on the top of our urban buildings. Buildings could produce energy and could produce food for the people. I am working, and there are many people working in the world in order to produce cities that are more ecological and cities that empower the citizens. This is the crucial point. I like that. And I have to say that when you describe uh, no sun and rain, that's my daily life in Helsinki. Oh. So <laughs> hopefully the rest is much. That's what global warming is bringing to, to Helsinki. Yeah. Yeah. In, in one of your books, uh, you say that the internet has changed our lives, but it has not still yet changed our cities. Which are the main challenges we have to start working on today to create that city of the future? You know, elevators used to have a people driving the elevator 100 years ago. Did you see the old elevators? They were, they had some tight benches because it was so slow that the people were sitting there. Now, elevators don't have a driver, obviously, and they go super fast. The cars, uh, self-driving cars, will be the elevators of the future in the cities, but they will not vertical, they will be horizontal. If I go to mm. from one place to another, I can ask that elevator that will be a kind of car that will be a kind of robot will bring us there. And then obviously I don't own the elevator in my building. So that means that they, you don't need to own a car if you want to move from one point to another. This makes sense because then that means that we don't need, people are wasting so many hours inside cars because there are so many cars and then the cities are, are collapsed in Moscow, in Beijing, in many Chinese cities people spend their lives inside cars. From my point of view, one next challenge is connected with mobility that will be connected with or public transportation or hmm. sharing cars. Uber has been just the beginning of this, but there will be many other things connected with Tesla technology or uh, electrical cars. From my point of view, the next big revolution is connected with energy, with idea, with the internet of energy. How is possible that we are importing gas from Argelia or from the Middle East in order to burn it here in Barcelona in order to produce our energy, while we have sand that we could produce our energy. So that means that we need to ask that the buildings need to be self-sufficient because the people will be richer. They will have the energy for free because the solar panels will be part of the buildings in the same way that we have the insulation or we have the windows or we have the doors. So that means that producing energy in cities will be another challenge. Performing mobility will be another challenge. You know, I work a lot in China now, and now they are not allowed to leave their buildings, and they are not allowed for sure to leave the neighborhoods. So that means that our idea about the self-sufficient neighborhoods, it makes sense. Hmm. The industrial city building in the 20th century is providing us energy in a centralized way. They provide food in a centralized way. They manage water in the centralized way. But every time we have a challenge, for example, the virus, now we bring the units of the city in the small, in the small pieces. And then that means that if we were able to make buildings that produce energy, produce food, or neighborhoods uh, in Barcelona, I would say that the unit is 500 meter radius from the market. So I would say that the neighborhood that is one square kilometer is the scale of the European cities. And then the challenge is, can we produce all our energy there? Can we produce 50% of our food? Can we produce the things that we need by using 3D printing, by recycling materials? Yes, we can. So the question is, why we don't do that? And then the, and how to do it. Yeah, yeah and then the, how to do it. You know, another interesting thing is that until now, ecology 
was the remediation of the uh, capitalistic exploitation of the world. And then the people are talking to ecology, like, oh, good is good ecology, but the business is in another place. The next big business is ecology. So the economy is the ecology. We were talking, discussing with Mark Palai about this. Economy is the, uh, ecology is the next economy because the business will be to produce energy and to manage the energy in the buildings. Economy will be to produce food and to manage the food and to give the service of the food uh, in the city themselves. So I would say the bioeconomy is the next thing that is coming. We know how the digital world will be. There are no big changes. We know already artificial intelligence will add something. We know that big data is good for something. They, many people is inspiring to ask Google, read our emails and so on. So we know about all these kind of things. But then the question is, what is next? The next big change will be connected with the biocomputation, with the bioeconomy, with transforming the ecology in the real economy. Because the big challenge is not to move faster, is to be a zero, to, to live in a zero emissions planet. And this is really the big challenge. We have that option of Blade Runner and not Sun anymore. And obviously, I will work for this. And the people in the Middle East that they are now uh, drilling oil, at some point, they will realize that they, uh, no one will be interested in buying their oil. It's not that they don't want to drill the oil is that we find we don't want to buy them. They will be, because they have resources, they will join the revolution. This is, from my point of view, what should happen in the history. Every time that we have these major changes, there were some big disasters before. There were wars. The United Nations was created after the war because the people didn't want to talk. So the question is, if we need to have a big disaster before the transformation is happening. I would prefer that this is not happening. How can people and cities become the solution instead of the problem, keeping in mind this human component you were just referring to? Yeah, you know, I want to follow your introduction because you say by 2050, there will be 9.7 billion people living in cities. No, like 9.7 people in the planet and 68 living in cities. You know, I did some numbers. And in order to reach those numbers, During the mm -hmm. next 30 years, every month, we'll build the equivalent to a city of 6.6 million. So we are facing in the next 30 years the biggest process of urbanization in the world, the biggest process of urbanization in the history. That means that if we keep running business as usual, for sure we'll destroy the planet. Because the question is not only that we run cities of zero emissions, is the question is how many emissions we produce when we are building the cities, when we are transforming our economy. And then from that point of view, I would say that what we need to, to do is really to have a good mixture of leadership from the people, the goal of cooperation. You know, our politics are at least in the Western world, are chosen by the people. That means that they represent us. They represent our goals and our ideals. And it's true that there are other forces that they don't, I would say, that they, they, they have some other agenda. And today we see many, I would say, interventions between blocks 
I mean, the wars between America and China and so on, and the interventions on Russia, and then the, the lack of leadership of Europe. This is not good news for our future, because what we need in moments of changes are strong leaderships. Otherwise, we'll be lost in the translation. So from that point of view, obviously, each of us, we can have small contributions. But you know, when I was working in the city council, I came from a bottom-up approach, but I learned that if we don't have a top-down answer, there is no solution. I mean, the majors are fundamental to take the decisions, to transform the economy. If the people live mostly in cities, if the missions are produced in cities, that means that the solutions are in cities. But then now we need new paradigms. PowerPoint are over. We don't need to talk anymore. We need to transform things. We need to put the money in the right places. Cities have budget. Cities have money. But if they keep doing things that are not addressing this challenge, then uh, it will be the disaster is ready, you know? So I would say that obviously cities are the solution. Cities are, can be the problem, but cities are the solution. Citizens are also leading what uh, politics are deciding. We need to have both a bottom-up approach and a top-down approach. And we need to have a new kind of leadership, new kind of project. We need to have best practice, but not just to talk about them. You know, we need really to see that things are real. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we know we, we, I live in a city where the so-called smart cities has been very important. But from my point of view, the concept of smart city are, is completely over. The digital world has allowed us to wire, the, to create the infrastructure, to wire our cities for the new challenge. And the new challenge is the bioeconomy and the bio cities. Smart city doesn't mean anything. A sensor is measuring things, but is not taking the decision. We don't want cars. We want to produce our food here. Buildings should produce energy. We are going to reduce all our matter. This will be a strong transformation. When listening to all the opinions we have heard in this chapter, I believe that it's not a matter of trying to figure out which are the solutions we should develop or to try to find the answers to our problems because most of them I think that are already there. But are we going to be humble and smart enough to listen to the experts and take the needed actions at all levels? If we can simply do that, the next time that we experience an outbreak, we'll be ready not only to offer proper medical attention to those who need it, but to go through it in a more resilient way and as well with a better economical and social model. If you're interested and you want to listen to the full interviews with Mark and Vicente, you will be able to find them in the podcast channel. Meanwhile, we'll talk the next time. Keep safe at home and have a great rest of the week.